Let's get started. This is uh, part three of our uh, three-part series uh, in pre-Pesach. We thought uh, to do something with a little bit of, uh, not the halachos, but a little bit of the spirit, a little bit of the tam uh, of Pesach. You know, chaval that only the kids or the dad should have divrei Torah. Why shouldn't you guys have some of your own divrei Torah to share as well? Uh, so I'll share with you some of my favorites. Uh, you know, there's nothing that has more written on it than the Haggadah. Every year there are countless, countless uh, Haggadahs that are printed. I used to have a practice of buying two new Haggadahs a year and then getting divrei Torah from that two Haggadahs. But uh, luckily for my family, I stopped that. Uh, I, it doesn't mean I don't buy new Haggadahs every now and then when a good one, you know, that particularly grabs my attention comes out. But the, the minha kavua of two new a year, I have stopped. Uh, thank God the shelf is already full with Haggadahs. But, uh, but thank God there's always still more to buy and always get new guns. But, um, so I want to share with you some of, the, uh, some of my, my favorite Divrei Torah. Uh, the truth is that some of these, you know, and in my capacity, some of these I give over over Pesach at the Seder, but sometimes I can give over things in other contexts. A lot of this obviously depends on the nature of your Seder, which depends on the nature of the age of your children and grandchildren, etc., etc. But these are ideas which hopefully will uh, inspire your actual Pesach experience. Uh, And if possible, uh, you can even share at the Seder itself. I'm I'm a big believer that you don't need to give Haggadah Devrei Torah only at the Seder. If there's a great idea which relates to Pesach or an overall theme which is anchored in a line in the Haggadah, you can give it over at lunch too. It's allowed. It's a, it's a heter. People think Rabbi Gottlieb is always machmir. That's a heter from Rabbi Gottlieb. You can give over, you can give over the very Torah, even not at the Seder, and even if they were connected to the Haggadah. So uh, we'll see, hopefully, time permitting to get through 7, 8, 9, 10, even if we can. Uh, in, in fact, including from a new Sefer. It wasn't a new Haggadah, but a new Sefer that I got about Pesach. So last night I wanted to add one new thing. So I found something new, which I hopefully will add uh, as well. So um, some of my old-time favorites and even a new favorite of mine. So let's start uh, with the first idea, which I think is very important. And this really... Uh, is the kind of thing you can even talk about with your kids before Pesach, but certainly uh, is something to, to stress and have understood at the outset. And that is, what is the purpose? Why are we doing any of this? What is the ultimate goal? In other words, the, the little, the Divrei Torah, you know, are, are the important, beautiful little trees, but we don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. What is the goal? What are we trying to do? And this actually, the mission itself tells us, we know this from the Agara, Chayev Adam Liros Es Atzmo, We're trying to recreate a feeling as if we are ourselves experiencing the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, not just telling an old story. Now, of course, this is infinitely easier to say than do. I think they say over in the name of, I don't know if it was the Briskorov, somebody that he thought this might be the hardest myth of the year, right? If you would ask somebody randomly, what do you think the hardest myth in Judaism is? I don't think anyone would have said the Haggadah. But said, if you realize what the Haggadah really is supposed to be, which is that you really genuinely get into that experience, that's really, really hard. That's really, really demanding. So how does one do that? So I want to share just two ideas, both of which I think are true. They're not contradictory. And either one of them and really both are probably things that we should keep in mind. A, because they're true and important, and B, because they could be helpful. Uh, number one is an insight of the Rambam. Uh, and if those, this is a very dominant influence in, I think, the way Svardim practice or experience the Seder. But this is one of those things where Ashkenazim have what to learn from. Uh, and that is the Rambam, when he quotes this halacha, does not say Chayv Adam Liros as Asma. You have to see yourself as if you went out. The Ramam very famously, when he brings down this halacha, says Chayv Adam Laharos as Asma. So what's the difference? It's just you know almost exactly the same word. Laharos means to demonstrate or to show, to act as if. So you know, as Americans, we may recall if you ever went to like Colonial Williamsburg 
one of those, you know, things where they dress up and they get into the, the you know, the the, the, the the you know, that uh, historical acting and you know that kind of thing. That seems to be what the Ramam is describing, some kind of emotional method acting. And therefore, those who follow this practice of the Rambam, I think very much try to reenact uh, ideas of the Seder. And therefore, this would be, uh, you know, there's a lot of goofy stuff that happens in certain people's Siddharim, right? Flying frogs and shtick. And you could say, you know, it's just, you know, an impoverished generation doing whatever they can to connect. And yet, but, which maybe is a certain truth to that. But the truth is, halakhically, I think it's very legitimate. It comes from this Rambam. Reenacting things, each, obviously you have to do it on an age-appropriate level. So again, it's famous that Svartim put matzah on their shoulders and they walk around the table. You know, again, it'll feel weird the first time you do it, but at some point, especially if you have kids who like to play along with things, you know, it'll be good and you, you, people will get used to it. Um, especially if you start doing this every year, it'll be something to get used to. Um, I think there are certain families which are very mocked to reenact the servitude. You know, one brother's hitting the other brother. Uh, you know, if you, you have to know your kids to know whether... Yeah, I'm saying you have to. So you have to know. You have to know your family whether this is a good, a pra, you know, a good practice or not. Yeah, buyer beware. You know, if a fight breaks out, don't blame it on Rabbi Gottlieb. Uh, but if you think your kids can handle that, uh, depending on what stage of life they're at, so that might be a way of doing it. But all the other things. I mean, when, when my kids were younger, again, I have to say, I could say mixat since she's not here. My wife was amazing. She used to have all this incredible shtick. Even for this one line, when we used to say this in Agara, she would buy these like funny sunglasses and we'd all have to put on these glasses. You know, chayv adam lirosasatsmo. Just different ways of anchoring uh, different experiences. And again, they can all, the goal isn't just, again, there is a goal to just keep kids entertained and involved. That's also important, giving out candy and all these different things that we do with, uh, with the kids and the afikomen. But part of it, again, especially if you have older kids, um, the more edu- there is an educational and substantive level. It's not just a gimmick. And that's the Chayv Adam Liros Atzma, to try to re-experience. That's, that's one thing I think is important. A second thing which is very important, um, I actually I haven't seen this written anywhere, but I think it's profoundly true, almost obviously true once you hear it. Um, and that is actually something that years ago, I went with Alana, we went on a school, her seminary, Shabbaton, to Tzfat. Um, two of those things don't happen anymore. The seminary, like every seminary, still goes to Tzfat. But I don't think she goes to that Shabbaton anymore. She got out of that. Our benefits to being the boss. Um, but even when she was going, I think only once did I slip all the way. That for sure only happened once. Uh, but one of the nice things that they try to do every year when they go to Tzfat is they try to bring the girls um, to have Kiddush and Herod Dvar Torah from the chief rabbi of Tzfat, Shmuel Eliyahu. I don't know if it works out every year, but it works out a lot. And the one year that I went with them, we got to hear from Shmuel Eliyahu. And I hope, I don't know for sure, I hope the girls were as moved by his words as I was. But years later, I still remember uh, his insight. And he was, was shortly before Pesach, I guess, because he mentioned uh, this idea. And he told the following story to illustrate the point. He said his father used to tell him, if you recall, when you go to Mar Samach Pela, uh, shortly before those steps to go up, there's a tree. A famous, an old tree. So he said his father, when his father was a kid, his father, his father, meaning his grandfather, told him, or his father of Mordechai, the famous chief rabbi, he said that that, that tree it was planted by Abram Ravinu. Okay, that's the Masora. The tree was planted by Abram Ravinu. Oshekain, Oshelo, I don't know, but that's the story. Okay, so little Mordechai, who's now a father and telling to little Shmuel, says, okay, so it's from Abram Ravinu. So then the, the, the grandfather said, well, if it's from Abram Ravinu, how many years old do you think the tree is? Uh, 3,000 and whatever years. Okay. He says, look at the tree. What's on the tree? He says, little olives. He says, are you allowed to eat the olives or not? 
So he says, well, I don't know, are they Orla? What is the rules of Orla? Well, it's, it's the first year, second year, or third year, right? So he says, one second, how, how, I thought you just said the tree is 3,000 years old. So are you allowed to eat the olives or not? So he goes, well, I guess so. He goes, of course you can eat the olives. But what do you mean, how long do you think the olives have been sitting on that branch? I don't know, a year, less than a year. He says, so how come it's not Arla? That's a trick question, obviously. It's a riddle. Because what's, what's the obvious answer? What's the point? When you see a fruit or some, you know, the, the, uh, the, pro, the produce, the product of something, we don't define it by how long it's, so to speak, been in the world. Right? That olive had only been around for who knows how long. Right? But we determine its life, how old it is, quote-unquote, by what it's being nourished by. Right? If, you're, if you're connected to the, to the Shorashim, right? we view that olive as a 3,000-year olive. I mean, it's not, it for, it has had a problem of early in years, even though it just showed up. Why? Because if you're Mechubar Shoresh, and the Shoresh is 3,000 years old, then halakhically the olive does not have a status of just having showed up on the scene, but having... And I thought it was a, such a profound... Again, halakhically, it's, it's, it's childish, it's so obvious. But as a metaphor, it was so powerful. And this is, you know, this is, you know, the Yitzhahara of youth probably in every generation, right? It's only with the wisdom that sometimes parents have to realize the importance of this, which is every you know, younger generation, this is, again, it's a natural product of development, stage of development, which is they want to feel like they're new and separate and independent from their parents and independent... Right? But the truth of the matter is, then all you are is whatever you are. Right? You have, there's so much more heft and significance when you realize that, in fact, yes, I'm new. There's a new olive every year, new crop every year. But if your yunika, if your life force is coming from roots which reach way back, then in a very, very meaningful way, you are connected to the past. And that, if you have that mentality, if you appreciate that that's the case, that everything... who of course, I'm an individual, but ultimately, all, everything that I have is the fact that this individual is just a link in a chain. But if you really see that your life force, your energy, that gives what, meaning, what gives meaning in your life, if you really believe that that comes from the previous generations, so then in fact, you're like that olive. Your yanika is coming from the Shorashim. So in that case, it actually is not so crazy to say, we went out. What do you mean we went out? Of course not you and I. Our avos. But our of us are we, because we get our yunika from them, just like that olive. It's not a gimmick to say you can eat the olive. It really is a halakhically old olive, in that sense. It's not a new olive that has an arla problem. It's an old olive, because it's getting its yunika from the shorashim. So we really live our lives, not as minutak from our past, but as really, that's the energy that gives our life meaning in general. So then, when we talk about those Jews who are Adam and Shreim, it's not they. It is we. I know that not only me, but maybe some other people at this table have chosen who are into sports. So a very common thing when people talk about their professional sports team that they love, they'll talk about, we won and we lost. And at some point, either you yourself realize or you have an older brother or a father or somebody or a Rebbe who points out how silly you sound, right? You ain't on the team. You can like them, but you're not on the Cubs and you're not on the Knicks and you're not on the Yankees and you're not on whatever, right? But here we have a chance to be on the team, that's exactly the point. It is our team. We're not just talking about they. I remember when in 1967 the Yankees... No, no, Because no. that's really a child. That, that, that's childish, of course. But if your life story is the story of the Jewish people, so then it is we. Not that I myself did it. But I can, it's as if I did because that, that, it's not they who went out. We went out. 
We really are part of the team. If you're part of the team, you could say we. If you're just an observer, then it's they. I think that's a very, very important point. Okay, let's move to the Haggadah itself. And of course, we begin with, I won't sing for anybody, don't worry. Uh, but the first part is Kadesh. So, about all, let me share you a brief idea, which I think is one of my favorites. Uh, very, very important lesson in life. Uh, important for adults to learn and to excite you can teach your kids. Very, very important. And that is the four cups as a whole. Why do we have four cups of wine? So why is it wine? It's an interesting question, but let's take for granted that it's wine. But why four? So the truth is, it's not obvious what the answer is. But there, in fact, the Gemara has different theories, different opinions. The most well-known, the one that we're all taught, is actually quoted by Rashi and others, but it's not at all the only opinion. But the one that's most well-known is because of the Arba Lashonos of Gula. When Moshe is heralding what's going to happen, so he tells the Jewish people the name of... Uh, in the name of Hashem, Hotsesi, Vitzalti, Vigaalti, Velakachti. I'm going to take you out in all these different four ways. So what's interesting is if you take a look at the source of this, even though that's how Rashi and everyone quotes it, the source of this is from the Gemara, actually in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And there it does not say the Arba Lashonos Shel Geula. It says the Arba Geulot. Why do we have four cups? Can I get Arba Geulot? So the author of the Torah Tamima, it's one of the commentaries on the Chumash, Rabbar Halevi Epstein, very colorful personality, was a modern rabbinic figure. So he points out that that's not an incidental or innocuous change of language. They're actually describing two very different phenomena. Arba Geulos means four different things happened. Arba Lushonos Shel Geula means that there's four synonymous ways of describing one process. But if, if that's the case, he asks, why, according to the tradition that we have, that this is Arba Lashonos of Geula, four different ways of describing the same process. He says, if that's the case, then why four cups? We're really only celebrating one thing. The fact that I, can, the fact that I have a poet's tongue and I can come up with four different ways of saying it, but it's one Geula described four ways. It should be one celebration. If you tell me there's really four different processes, four geulot, okay. But that's not our tradition. We always refer to it as Arba Lushonot Shel Geula. So why four cups? So he explains so beautifully. He says each one of the descriptions, not describing identical things. The big process of being slaves to being free, yes, that's one single process. But it happened in different stages. It says, when it describes Vahotzeti, it actually doesn't even mean, that, that's actually, that's the, that's the first thing. They didn't go free when it says Vahotzeti. It means that whatever level, you know, 10, the worst level of servitude, so now Hashem took, they were still slaves, but they were only a seven. You know, they, his power lowered it. It got a little bit better. Then Vahitzalti, okay, you're free, you're not a slave anymore, but you're in Egypt. Then Vagaalti, then you're completely free, you leave Egypt. And only then, by Harsinai, let's say Vilakahdi, then you truly become Hashem's people, you get the Torah. Each one of these stages, his point is, there was something that happened, but it was only partial. We might have thought, we often do think in life, that until something is perfect and complete, it's worthless. <coughs> I dreamed of X, whether it's a certain kind of job, a certain kind of marriage, a certain kind of child, a certain kind of success, even in more minor things. And it's, we have a mentality of usually all or nothing. 
So says the Tartimimah, the lesson to learn from this is, why do we have four cups? Yes, it's one geula. But we raise our glass and we thank Hashem, not only at the end, on the fourth cup, at Hallel, but we do it the three times before then as well, even though right now, in the beginning of the Seder, we're not free yet. So what are we toasting Hashem for? What do we thank Hashem for? The answer is because each little bit is worthy of thanks. There can be geula even before there was geula. We have to realize that you know, as the uh, very insightful cliche, but it's an insightful cliche, goes, right, the perfect can't be the enemy of the good. We have to realize that there's all sorts of partial victories along the way. And life is a quite miserable place to be if you never appreciate the partial victories and the small joys of life. If it's only the big things and when it's perfect and when it's complete and when I get to the finish line, halavai, but you know, that doesn't happen as often as people would like and there could be a long wait to get there. But there are tons of little things in every area of our life. And we focus, even though there's ultimately, there's only one ultimate geula, but there are different lashonos, meaning different stages of that. And even when it's not perfect, it's still worth raising a glass, even worth having hakar satov and being appreciative of that. Number two, number three. Ah, orchats. So orchats, without fail, you, your husband, somebody will remind everyone that we go wash without a bracha. And guaranteed, somebody in the family will say, oops! Right? Every other Shabbos, did you say a bracha? But come to the Seder, everyone's makbut on the bracha they shouldn't make. Right? This is just Pavlovian, it's just, it, you can't help it, it's, it's Murphy's Law, it's everything, all rolled up into one. Okay, fine, someone's going But why do we do it? Well, we're not eating now. Why are we washing without a bracha? Why are we confusing ourselves and our kids? So as some of you may know, the halacha is very, very esoteric. But I want to re- review this esoteric halacha because it's going to lead to what I think is a very, very relevant and actually profound and beautiful insight of Rav Kook. The quote-unquote esoteric halacha brings us all the way back to the laws of Tumah Tahara, very much safer Vayikra theme. That is that food, we read about this in the previous parsha. food, even if touched by somebody Tameh, food could only become Tameh if it had first become susceptible to Tumah. Right? As we know, right? if you've got your antibodies, it doesn't matter if you were exposed to somebody, at least in theory, you're not supposed to get sick. You're not susceptible to the sickness. Right? So Tumah is a sickness, if you will. Only, even if you have direct contact with something Tameh, if the food was not susceptible to becoming Tameh, it wouldn't become Tameh. What makes food susceptible to becoming Tameh? It touched water. Or not, I shouldn't have said water, because there's actually seven different liquids. It became wet. It became wet. So why do we wash? Because we're about to do karpas, or we're going to take our vegetable and dip it in liquid. If our hands would be tamay, so then now we'd be making the food tamay. And therefore we wash our hands, which is what we get to off of our hands, before we dip. That's the whole thing. Okay? Taking us back to our fondest memories of Tumavatara and Sefer Vayagra. So that's it. So if Cook asks a very simple question, what does that have to do with Pesach? In other words, that was true in the old, when we had a Beis HaMikdash. Hopefully one day, again, it will be true when we have a Beis HaMikdash. But it's not relevant to our life at all now. now. If you want to say that, I don't know, once a year we should reenact just to remember the good old times, why Pesach? Why the Seder? There's nothing about anything I described that's inherently thematically linked to the Seder. 
Don't you have, you know, people have uh, salad dressing and, you know, have vegetables that are wet. I mean, nowadays we're hygienic, right? We wash, we wash our produce before we eat it. Like, we do that all the time. Why don't I have a... If you want to be worried about this, Allah says, tell me I have to wash my hands every time when I, before, uh, before I dip. What does that have to do with the Seder? It seems to be totally unre- irrelevant to the story. So Rav Cook answers beautifully. He says, in fact, it's totally connected. Because <coughs> a Seder, of course, and the whole Pesach story is all about freedom, about cheres. It's a defining characteristic of a free man, a free woman, a free person is the ability to dream. To imagine a better future. Poor people, I shouldn't say poor people, that's, maybe that's not the right word. Enslaved people cannot truly say L'shan Haba. L'shan Haba is dreaming of a better future. A slave only has the embittered present, cannot imagine a better future. No matter how hard our life is sometimes, and thank God we all have relatively blessed lives, we're not living in Ukraine right now. But even if we were, even if we were and we were in the middle of a war, the ultimate defining characteristic of our free human being is the ability to dream of a better future. And the truth of the matter is, right, the incredibly uh, articulate uh, Prime Minister of Ukraine, this is why he's been so effective in terms of the PR part on the world stage, is every time he speaks, whether it's the Knesset or the, to the Congress or whatever, he speaks, he's, he doesn't just talk about how terrible what Russia is doing now is. He's very articulate and very inspiring. He describes how we're going to rebuild Ukraine and it's going to be bigger, better than ever. Because a free person can dream of a better future no matter how bad the present is. Senator of Cook, but if you're a slave, there's no dreaming, there's no future, there's just the same monotony and repetition of my slave schedule. When we dip, we wash our hands because we're going to dip, it's not relevant anymore in our world. But it's our way of dreaming that one day, hopefully soon, the Shana Haba, there will be a carbon Pesach. The Shana Haba, there will be a Pesach. The Shana Haba, we're going to have to worry about Tum again. Now, yes, it's true, we should be dreaming about that 365 days a year. But it's inherently connected to the theme of the Seder and of Pesach because the reason that we can and we should dream about every day of the year is because of the night of the Seder. It's because we became free men on Tetvav Nisan. That's what gives us the ability to dream of a better future. That's really what Orchatz is about. It's about the ability to envision that one day this will actually be Halach HaLamaisa again. We'll have a Beis HaMikdash again. Tumantara will be part of our lives. And the fact that we can even imagine that we can only imagine that, but the fact that we can imagine that only became possible because we became free on Pesach at the Seder night. Okay, so that is Orchatz. Next, Karpas. Karpas gives me an opportunity to tell over one of my favorite Debrei Torah from my favorite, yes, not one of, but I will go on record as my favorite English Haggadah. And that is the Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Haggadah. It's been reprinted in numerous forms uh, over the years. I'm pretty sure the only consistent thing is that it's expensive. Uh, it is one of the more expensive, relatively speaking, one of the more expensive Haggadahs, but I say it's worth it. Uh, the Rabbi Sachs Haggadah is fantastic. Um, there's two sections to the Haggadah. There's like the little vorts underneath the actual text of the Haggadah along the way. And then there's also, I think, 10, 11, 12, I can't remember how many longer essays on themes uh, of Pesach. It really is fantastic. It also gives me an opportunity to Shepnachas and give you a, t- a classic Aliyah story. So many, many years ago, I bought, in one of, I think, the first edition in paperback of the Rabbi Sachs uh, 
Haggadah. He was better at the substance than he was at the titles. He wasn't so creative with the title. The title, his, the real name of the Haggadah is the Rabbi Sachs Haggadah. <laughs> I obviously didn't put too much time into figuring out a creative title. Anyway, I guess when your name is Rabbi Sachs, that's the best marketing. Who needs to come up with a clever title? Just use your name, that's it. Anyway, great Haggadah. I've used it for many, many years. It's got wine stains on it. It's got, uh, you know, it's, it's a real life used Haggadah. Sure enough, this year, my youngest son, Aaron, he's gotten, like some of my other kids also, he's gotten obsessed with Rabbi Sachs. What did he buy himself this year to prepare to learn for the Seder? The Rabbi Sachs Haggadah. But, that's the Stanachas as a parent, though. the best part of that, the Aliyah story is, of course, he bought the Hebrew Haggadah because he couldn't read the English Haggadah. The English is too hard for him. That's not normal English, Rabbi Sachs English. Meanwhile, I would be reading very, very slowly that Haggadah in Hebrew. So we can have a Harusa. I have the Rabbi Sachs Haggadah in English. Yes, yes. I'm saying it's very yeah, but with those those type of Hebrew, half the words are you know you have to realize half them are really English words and or Latin words. Anyway, it's 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 a great Haggadah. It's really it's really worth it. So whether you have it in Hebrew or English, um, I, I I highly recommend it. That's the Torah version of. I think some of you have heard me say this before. That sometimes people ask me about what it's like to raise kids in Israel. So one of the illustrations I often give them a parallel to this, uh, but also from England. Interestingly enough, uh, on a lighter level, is Harry Potter. My older two kids came at slightly older age when we made Aliyah. Every one of my kids at 4 for 4 are obsessed with Harry Potter. But the older two only read it in English, and the younger two only read it in Hebrew. So really, it's very fascinating. They can talk about it, all four of them talk about it with each other. But and so every now and then, they're like, oh, you're talking about so-and-so, oh, that, and then they'll say, oh, the Hebrew word, or the English word. because they don't. Anyway, just interesting the way kids grow up, and what age they make Aliyah, what language they gravitate towards. Uh, anyway, so whether it's the Haggadah or Harry Potter. And by the way, there's a Harry Potter Haggadah, which I own. Huh? Aviva illustrated it. I did not know that. Okay, so Rabbi Moshe Rosenberg from Queens and from SIR. Yeah, Haggadah for Muggles or something like that it's called. Yes. So um, I, don't, I, I actually never read Harry Potter. I'm the one person in my family who never read it. Anyway, okay. So Rabbi Sachs. Now uh, back to our regular schedule program. Rabbi Sachs. So in his Haggadah, he makes the following observation. Karpas is the first, but not the only time we dip, as we say in Manashtana. Right? Shtei Pa'amim. What's the other time that we dip? Of course, the murrah, right? We take our romaine lettuce and we dip it in the harosas. Now here's one, I guess, uh, one indulgent, you know, indulge me for one word of halacha. What many people do, including I did when I was younger, is a mistake. You don't pile on mounds of harosas so that you don't taste the, 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 the romaine lettuce. Right? You're supposed to shake off the... In some families, the men are eating a lot of harosas too. I wouldn't make it a gender thing. Uh, anyway, the point is that you're really not supposed to do that. You're supposed to eat the charosas afterwards, if you like. But you're supposed to just dip it into the charosas and then shake it off. Fine. There's two dippings. Why two? So says Rabbi Sachs. Now this, what I'm about to say, other people said before him, but then what he adds to it is really original. And that is, the reason we have two dippings, why we dip it all, and why two, is because the whole story is bookended by two acts of tefillah, of two acts of dipping. How did the whole, how did the whole mess get started? Mechiras Yosef. The brothers take the coat, dip it in the blood, to bring it back to their father, to sell him on the lie that Yosef had been killed. And how does the story end? Yitziat Mitzrayim. They dip in the blood of the carbon Pesach, and they smear it on their doorposts. So the beginning and the end of the story, the story is bookended by dipping... Therefore, we have two dippings. Okay, that you could actually find in earlier sources. But as Rabbi Sachs, so uh, sharply and so characteristically brilliantly, he says there's something very profound about how we dip. When it comes to karpas, 
or t- he refers to it as something sweet. So I don't know if I'll call it sweet, it depends on what you use. You know, the Tights family, the famous in Elizabeth, you see they use bananas. Yeah, it's hadama. So they use, the only criteria for carpas is really that it has to be hadama. So they use, yes. So they use, they use yes. Adi if you go to the Grossman's in Armachilo, they still, if you're a grandchild of the Tights, you gotta use, you gotta use a banana. Um, anyway, the blouse, they all use bananas. So, we use potatoes, other people use celery, whatever you use is fine. So Rabbi Sachs refers to it as something sweet, certainly compared to the salt water. Right? You're taking something that's ho- hopefully okay tasting, even good, slightly good tasting, and dipping it into something so bitter, as opposed to in maror, we take something bitter, quote-unquote, the actual maror, and dip it into karpa, something sweet. It's, right? it's exactly the reverse. One's mirror of the... Taking sweet, dipping, di- dipping into bitter, bitter dipping into sweet. Why? She says that it's really perfect. Because the beginning of the story, Mechiris Yosef and everything, what is that teaching us? What's the lesson we're supposed to remember when we dip our karpas into the salt water? That even something that is inherently sweet, like freedom, can be ruined and poisoned if there's sinas chinam. You can take something that's objectively good and destroy it with a lack of achtos. Thank you very much. With, with hatred. On the other hand, at the end of the story, we take maror, which is remembering our servitude, our persecution, the pogroms and the holocaust and everything, and we dip it into something sweet to remind us that even when we're in the most difficult situation, but if we have Abbas Yisrael who have each other if we're there for each other, we can find the silver lining, we can find the good in every experience. So there's a certain you know, chap there, which is really clever that he even noticed that, and I think it's a really, really uh, profound lesson, that even freedom can become bitter if we mistreat others, if we abuse that freedom. And the mar into the haroses, reminding us that even slavery or difficult times can become sweetened when the collective suffering brings, brings more achtos and human solidarity. Okay, now we're ready for the big uh, body of the Haggadah, Magid itself. And of course, Magid uh, begins with Halach Ma'anya. For the sake of time, I'll skip a, a short idea that I like to say, Halach Ma'anya. And let's go to the Manishtana. Manishtana, the four questions, which are perhaps really one, but four questions, which are then responded to. How do we respond to our children asking the four questions? Avarim Hayinu. In many, many Haggadahs, many, many Mepharshim over the years have all asked the same question. How does Avadim Hayinu answer the question of Manashtana? Why do we have matzah as opposed to... So then tell me the story of matzah. We went out, we didn't have time to rise. That's not the answer. Why mar? Yeah, that's maybe sort of answered, but why dipping? That's not answered. Why leaning, reclining? We don't answer the question in Avadim Hayinu. So a lot of answers to the question, but I want to give you one of the ones that I think is uh, most profound... And um, it's a good lesson, again, if you have older kids, it's something to talk about. And Stam, it's just good as, it's, it's one of the best parenting or chinuch advices I could give anybody. And that is as follows. This is in a Haggadah, uh, which I have called Haggadah's Kama Ma'alos. Um, it's perhaps more well known in modern, for modern Israelis as the Rev Eli Sadan Haggadah. Rev Eli Sadan, for those who are not familiar with the name, he is the one who founded the entire Mechina movement. He founded the Mechina of Eli, but by doing so, he found an entire movement. It's become a movement. Uh, one of the most influential and uh, visionary 
rabbinic leaders of the last 30, 40 years in Israel, very, very famous uh, personality, someone who I've met more than once uh, personally. Um, and he has a very nice Haggadah, uh, originally obviously published in Hebrew, and then as a fundraiser years ago, they actually translated it into English, so you can get it in Hebrew or English. Um, and Rav Sadan, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in his Haggadah, he gives the following explanation. He says, in fact, it looks like we're ignoring the question, right? It's like, you know, you, you know we all had that experience at some point in, in school or, in, you know, seminary, whatever, you, know, you ask a teacher a hard question, and then they just, you know, go off on a tangent to ignore, the, you know, to try to avoid, you know, hoping that if they tell you enough about how they met their husband, you'll forget that they never answered your question, uh, kind of thing, right? Classic teacher technique. So, Rav Sadan says, it looks like that's what we're doing, right? We're just, you know, talking about who knows what, telling stories instead of answering the question. He says, that's not actually what's happening at all. What's actually happening is what he calls sound educational technique. He says, if you think about it, all four of the questions, every stanza in Manashtana, are the child focusing on strange, anomalous details of the Seder. Why do we eat this and not that? Why do we sit this way and not that way? Why do we do what we do? Why don't we do what we usually do? Very detailed, specific, oriented questions. Said when we answer, we're deliberately not responding directly to the details, but rather zooming out and focusing on the larger, more general issues. Why? Because educationally, the only way a person can truly appreciate all of the details of Jewish life is if you first understand the Jewish story. You can't appreciate the details out of context. You need to know the broader narrative. You need to know the Jewish story. You need to know Jewish history. If you separate the details from the background, so then there's nothing that's ever going to be truly, fully uh, understood, not completely answered. First, we need to understand the broader picture, who we are, where do we come from, where did it all emerge out of. Then, and only then, can we get to the details. And in fact, says Rav Sadan, later on in the Haggadah, eventually we do answer, Matzah al-Shoma, Moror al-Shoma, we do answer the questions, but not right away. First, let me tell you a story. Understand who we are and where we're coming from. And he added a little a nuance, a knech, if you will, after that, as he points out. And even though eventually at the end, yes, at the end of Magid, we do get to the answer of the questions, even then, we only answer the big questions, right? Of the four, matzah and amara, the first two matashtanas are the big ones, right? Those are about real mitzvos. Dipping, leaning, those are secondary things. And Rav Sadan... It's also very clever. He says, those we actually never, he says, we never actually answer those. There's nowhere in the Haggadah, I could give you an answer to those, but it's not in the Haggadah. There's, no, there's nothing in the Haggadah that actually ever answers those two. He says, that, <coughs> that is to highlight <coughs> the fact that the, knowing the answers to every detail, that's, that, that can't be the primary source of inspiration or education. Not that there aren't answers. First of, all, some, first of all, it highlights the fact that we don't always know answers and we have to learn how to live with questions. But second of all, to de-emphasize the need for the answer of every detail. 
And I think that, again, certain people are more naturally curious than others. And you, again, you have to know yourself. You still have to know your child. What works for one child does not work for a different child. And that's the famous insight of Rav Hirsch, where he says, right, that even in the Avos, maybe they made that mistake. Yitzhak may have tried to raise Yaakov and Esav the same, and that was the mistake. And again, I, 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 it sounds like I'm making this up. I actually literally had this once at my dining room table back in Baltimore, where parents came to me. They were one of their uh, middle or younger children was really struggling. And the father said to me, I don't understand. You know, we're doing everything with him that we did with his older brother, and it worked. I said, that's exactly the problem. You're doing everything with him that you do with your older brother. They're not the same child. That's exactly what Rav Hirsch says about uh, Yaakov and Esau. Okay, so <clears throat> I think that um, in general when it comes to you know, our kids, so obviously no one, no, no one size fits all. Uh, and you do have <coughs> some uh, obviously understanding who your kids are. But I think as a general rule, as a general rule, I think that this is basically true, which is that the more the kids understand and appreciate and enjoy the big picture, it's very unlikely, I can't say never, very unlikely that they're really going to rebel or because of a specific detail. When they don't connect to the big picture, now why would a child raised in a nice, wonderful from home not connect to the big picture of his family's... That's a very difficult question, a very big question, and the answer is every case is going to be different. But okay, when you don't connect to that big picture... So then you are obviously potentially going to have problems. But if somebody connects to the big picture, and to the narrative, and to the story of the Jewish people, to my family story, but I don't understand this detail or that detail, very unlikely that they're going to really, really rebel. On the other hand, if you just focus on all the details, 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 so for certain kids it'll be fine. There are certain people, Hashem just gives us, gives certain people certain kind of kids, and they're just going to do whatever they're told, it's fine. Our kids like, they, they, such kids exist. They do, really, I promise. <laughs> Some, somebody got them, um, right? But for a lot of kids, that, especially as they get older, it will not work. Right? They have to feel the meaning of it. And the meaning, I think Rav Sadan is 100% correct, the meaning doesn't come from the specific details usually. The meaning comes from the broader picture. So again, I'm not trying to be simplistic about something that can be very, very complicated, but I thought as a broad insight, I think it's very, 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 very relevant. Okay, next. So one of the things that we talk about a lot at the Seder, a very well-known <coughs> section, we describe how there were a bunch of great rabbis with Rabbi Akiva and B'nai Brak, and they stayed up all night, and we, in, con- in conjunction with that uh, paragraph, we also say, doesn't matter how learned we are, how many years we spent in yeshiva, how many years we spent in seminary, still it's always a, a mitzvah to retell the story, the more we tell, the better. The question is, why? Again, we say this every year, so we take it for granted, but why? We don't say that about other mitzvahs. There's a certain minimum. There's a sheer. How much? You know, your child goes away to yeshiva, he'll come back and tell you that it's even double. Whatever it is, okay, fine. But there's some sheer you have to do. It's not just more is better. More is not always better. What, what's going on? Is it just intellectual curiosity? It's not such a complicated story. How long could he talk about the same thing? What's going on? So I thought this is a good opportunity in general uh, to highlight something which I think is key to the Seder, but it's really key to just having hopefully engaged Jewish children all year round. And that is the need uh, to nurture uh, intellectual curiosity and a, a thirst 
for, for growing and for learning. And it's interesting, you know, um, we said it all, the story goes all the way back on some level to Mechiris Yosef, that's true. But the Geula part, when does the story change? Or if the, in, the, in the movie, you know, when, when does the music change? Because right, that's when Moshe sees the burning bush, right? All of a sudden, that's the introduction for the Geula. So it's interesting, the Medrash asks, what did Moshe do that he deserved this revelation, this prophecy? So the Medrash actually has two different opinions, which will shock you with how like, silly they almost they sound. One opinion is, he took three steps towards the bush. The other opinion is, he didn't even do that, but he craned his neck to see what's going on. That's it? That's all he did? So the Medrash explains that there were many other shepherds that had walked right by. It didn't just, you think Moshe was the only guy in the desert that day? And just when he... If I thought about it carefully enough when I was a kid, probably my whole life I did assume that the, the, it just went on fire. You know, he walked by, there was this invisible tripwire. Right when he was there, it went... So I'm not saying it didn't happen that way, maybe other Medrash, but at least one Medrash says, no, other, other shepherds walked by, but they didn't see. Eh, okay, I got more stuff. You know, interesting, but I got to feed the goats, you know, I got things to do. And Moshe points out, just even in that little step that he made, it reflects his curiosity. What's going on? So in the Sefer Sum Derech, which was a uh, collection on Chumash, that's actually not on Haggadah, but it's on Chumash, by uh, Rav Simcha Zussel Broidi, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Hebron in Yerushalayim, uh, just a generation ago. So he points out that Moshe was, was a grown man. He was 80 years old by that point. And yet, he had a thirst for knowledge. He was still trying to learn more. He didn't know. Again, we assume that he knew there was a big momentous occasion was about to happen. His life was about to change. He didn't know that until the, 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 the bush started talking to him. But just the fact that, you know, something interesting. Oh, I can learn something. What's, what's this? That little bit of extra curiosity always wanting to learn and to grow uh, more. And I saw a few years ago, Art Scroll put out a Rabbi Fran Haggadah. Again, creatively titled, The Rabbi Fran Haggadah. Again, I think the theme being, if your last name is already a brand, then why mess with it? So in the Rabbi Fran Haggadah, uh, he actually suggests that this might also explain uh, an idea which we have um, also about Moshe Rabbeinu, which is that when Moshe came down from the mountain, we know it says that his, his, his face glowed, Karan or Panav, which of course Michelangelo mistranslated and thought Karan was Karen and thought he had horns. But the Medrash asks, where did Moshe's glow come from? What, what attribute, what about Moshe was so special that he glowed? So there's different opinions in the Medrash. But one opinion, it's an opinion I've spoken about in other contexts, uh, usually I give different explanations. But this is a new one I saw in the Rabbi Fran Haggadah, is that the Medrash says that Hashem had given Moshe a quill with just enough ink to write the whole Torah. But Moshe, when he had to write the words, Ba'ish Moshe Anav Adam Mikol Adam, it was too much for him to write about how humble he was. Therefore, he leaves out a letter, Anav without a Yud. And therefore, because of that letter he left out, so there's a little extra ink in the quill. Interesting, right? So, what's the lesson of that? Obviously, it's metaphoric. So, the way a friend interprets it, he says it was the idea of there being a little ink left in the quill was a way of symbolic, a metaphor of describing this idea of Moshe basically saying there's always more to learn. He didn't, he didn't use it up. He didn't use up all the ink. Not, not all that has been said 
And that all that could be said has been said. There's still more to learn. There's still more to see. There's still room to grow. A little extra ink highlighting that there's all, you never finished. The job is never complete. I thought that was a nice little twist. But the basic idea, going back again to um, Moshe's intellectual curiosity, his thirst for knowledge, his ability to always want to grow, that's what got him to stop in the first place. And of course, the rest is history. And therefore, the suggestion is, that's what we try to embed, therefore, in the Haggadah. I did it already. Come on, we know the story already. No. If you're intellectually curious, if you're ambitious, if you're trying to grow, then you know that each year we can come up with new things and new experiences. I think that, again, it's important to help the Haggadah be fresh uh, and the Seder be fresh because you don't want it to be monotonous and boring. Uh, it's, again, there's a certain paradox. I don't, I don't have the master key to unlock this paradox, but it's a paradox that if everything is the same, it's boring and rote. But it's also true, just as importantly, that the magic of every family's Seder is the very fact that so many things are the same. Right? If you did every single tune new, your kids would hate it. Right? You look forward to certain tunes, which is why, by the way, I don't think this is, again, a profound insight of mine. I think many people probably noticed and have pointed out. Of all of the things we have to experience at our in-laws, Pesach at our in-laws, Rosh Hashanah at our in-laws, Sukkot at our in-laws, those first things when you get married and you have to start sharing things, you can kind of get used to anything except for the Seder. I never heard anyone complain, oh my gosh, oh yeah, Rosh Hashanah at my in-laws, it was, you know, I just can't handle the way their, their, their guy blows the chauffeur. <laughs> okay, it's a little different than you grew up, or the tunes, I love my, people sometimes, uh, the tunes I grew up with, but it, people are fine for the most part. But it's not at all an uncommon thing the first time someone has Seder at their in-laws' house. Oh, it's not our tunes. <laughs> I miss my mom, you know, I miss, I miss Pesach at my house with my parents. It's a very common thing. Because there's something unique about a parental seder, and it's the very fact that in your family they do the same shtick and the same tunes. So to do everything new, it would lose the magic. But to do nothing new, to lose that spark of curiosity and, in, uh, and freshness, would also, be, would also be a problem. Okay, let's move on. Let's go to the four sons. We'll do two more ideas. It's 10.50, so we'll do uh, two, or th- two or three um, ideas. Okay, this is one I love from Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. So, again, in my family growing up especially, and I think it's even true with my kids, if I remember correctly, I think this is the case. Now, thank God, as the family, we have a big sadarm with my sisters and all our kids. So it's a little, what you gain by being with all the cousins, you lose in intimacy. It's, it's a yin and the yang, you can't avoid it. Uh, but certainly remember when I was growing up, we had a smaller seder, obviously, and even when I was just with my own immediate family, this would happen, which is figuring out which child at the seder is going to read which one of the children, you know, and again, in many families, there is a child who's known as more of the troublemaker. So all of his or her siblings are like pointing at you know, him or her to be the Russia. And then the father is trying to be very clever. And Dafka gives that child to read the Chacham. Right? This was like a thing in everyone's family. There's some dynamic uh, of this. When I was a kid, I remember, you know, same thing. But he got to be the Chacham last year. He's always the, I'm always the Russia. You always pick on me. Right? This kind of thing. Um, so, in all seriousness, this brings up a question that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky asks, which is, when we say, can I get Arba Banim, right? He says, how do you know who's who? Would they, would they, everyone wears a sign? He's a Tom, he's a ship. What's with the labeling? So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky says something very interesting, very beautiful. He says, on the one hand, yes, it's true, and I think we're more sensitive to this in the modern era. Kids are different. And kids have different learning abilities, learning styles. And as we said before, if you just treat them all as my brilliant son, my brilliant daughter, 
What if they're not? Right? So you have to, on the other hand, said Rav Yaakov, you should start off with the default that everyone's the Chacham. The default is they're all Chachamim. As they get older and it becomes apparent that this one's a shtickle less and this one's a shtickle more, and this one learns this way and this one learns that way, so then you have to be a good parent to learn how to be flexible. But you have to start off with the assumption of Kulam Chachamim. And this ties into a very beautiful, very famous idea that he has, not on Haggadah, but in his commentary to the Chumash, which is a really uh, one of my favorite educational ideas, and I think it's, it's so, so true, and it fits into the Arba Banim, but it's really just a, a lifelong message. There's a halacha in the Shulchan Aruch. Could a Jewish baby nurse from a non-Jewish woman? These things don't happen that much nowadays, but certainly for much of human history, there was a concept called a wet nurse. There would be women who for many, many years... Years and years were lactating, right? They had one baby and then they just were nursing everyone else's child for years and years and years. And then as long as you're nursing, the milk's going to keep on being produced. So could a Jewish baby nurse from a non-Jewish nurse? Is that milk treif? So says the Shulchan is brought down in Shulchan Aruch. Of course it's not treif. Only milk from a non-kosher animal would be treif. Human being, mother's milk, that's a chiddush. That a mother's milk is kosher. It doesn't matter if it's a mother or a Jew or non-Jew. Technically, it's kosher. But you shouldn't do it. It's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. How did the Shulchan Aruch know that it's not appropriate? For a medrash about Moshe. Why? Because the medrash tells us when baby Moshe is found floating on the river, he's crying. When you see a baby crying, what do you assume? He's hungry. They tried to feed him. Basparo gave all of her various wet nurses, all the servants, tried to nurse him. He wouldn't take. Out springs Miriam from behind the bushes. This is a Jewish baby. I know a Jewish wet nurse, i.e. the baby's mother, that I can bring the baby to. And of course then we bring Moshe back. And for some undetermined amount of time, I don't think we know really how long it was, he's back with his family until eventually he has to be returned to Basparo once he's been weaned. So the Medrash says on that, that it wasn't appropriate. Peh, this mouth, that eventually is going to be talking to Hashem, this mouth shouldn't be nursing from a non-Jewish mother. That's a medrash about Moshe. That's why Moshe, doing really wrong with it, but Moshe on his level wouldn't have been appropriate that he is nursing from a non-Jewish mother. So that's the source, says the Shulchan Aruch, why you shouldn't use a non-Jewish wet nurse to nurse your Jewish child. To ask of Yavkov Kamenetsky, there's no connection. The whole thing's a non sequitur. The very source you're telling me says because Moshe was so special and he was so unique and he was going to eventually be up on Har Sinai for 40 days and be the closest Navi ever in the history of human being, humanity to Hashem, that's why he couldn't have a, a, Jewish, a non-Jewish wet nurse. What does that got to do with my uncle and my Rivka? They're not Moshe Rabbeinu. They're not up on the mountain. Why is that a source in Shulchan Aruch for all Jewish children forever and ever? And it says Rav Yaakov, that's exactly the point. When you've got little Yankel and you've got little Rifko, you should be looking at them as if they could be the next Moshe Rabbeinu. They probably won't be. And when, trust me, at some point they'll figure out a way to let you know that they're not going to be. <laughs> but you know that right now when they're a little baby and still nursing? Kulano chachamim, kulano nevamim. Right now everyone's a chacham. Right now, everyone could be the next Moshe Rabbeinu. And again, I don't need to tell you that that's an incredibly important default. 
that we should have towards our children. I spoke about this, I can't remember, two or three weeks ago in Shul, in my drasha on Shabbos, not about this particular idea, Dvar uh, Torah, but the overall idea that more than what we say, our kids, trust me, they, they know how we look at them. And if you look at your child as the bad child, as the troublemaker child, as the not smart child, trust me, they're getting the message no matter what else you're telling them. It's very, very important to look at them with very, very positive eyes and see the good, even when you're not blind at all, of course, to the challenges of a particular child. Okay, last but not least, I'll end with, maybe, well, for sure, the, the new idea. The, what's the new idea? Literally, I found it last night. Brand new idea. And this will skip, we'll skip, end the magi. What happens now? We're ready to eat. We're starving. Pesach, excuse me, we, well, we say Pesach Matsumar, Ramah Gamliel, that's at the end of Magid. But also, what we actually do, we do Matzah, Motzi Magid, Motzi Matzah, Maror, Korech. Why is Matzah before Maror? should be the opposite. Maror reflects the servitude. Matzah is, as we're running out of Mitzrayim, we didn't leave the time for the bread to rise. So Matzah is the Gula. So it should be Maror than Matzah. The Maror came first. First we're 210 years bitter slavery, and then we run out matzah. Right? So we do the Haggadah out of order. Plus even Ramon Gamliel, when he says you have to say three, these three things, Pesach, matzah, umar. Again, mar is after matzah. Why? So the, the note of Yehuda, famed Rav of Prague, right? Cheska Landau. So he has drushos, and in one of his drushos I saw last night, so he says something again, very simple, but I think very profound insight. He said, you only tr- truly appreciate just how bad the avdus was once you're free. Over time, when all you know is avdus, I, am, I imagine you don't confuse that with being on a vacation, but you can't really appreciate just how bad it is because that's all you know. It's actually only once you taste freedom, then you can kind of look back. It's kind of like the PTSD kind of thing. Only after the fact can you realize, oh my gosh, that's what I experienced. See, he says very beautifully, we do maror after matzah because until we've tasted the freedom of the matzah, we didn't really appreciate how bad the maror is. He then adds, he thinks that's why Hillel did koreh, right? We know the simple interpretation is you have to have Pesach, the steak, you have to have the matzah, and you have to have the maror. You can have them, you know, on a plate. You know, you can either get the shawarma and a lafa, you can get it on a plate. So the, most of the time, so we do it on a plate, so to speak. And Hill said, no. Hill was korech, matzah, mara, everything was together. So the Norabuda says, homiletically, it's the same idea. That you can't appreciate the mara unless you're tasting it with, with the carbon Pesach and with the, uh, and with the uh, matzah. And again, if this, if this is true in the negative, I think it's obviously also true in the positive. Right Again, none of us want to go through hard times. None of us wish on ourselves or our children, God forbid, hard times, so that we should appreciate the good, even though we all know that it's the only way. Right? If your children, if you're just, you know, if the hardest thing in life ever was for them that, you know, they got this present instead of that present, which again, for most of us, Baruch Hashem, that's the way our kids are blessed to live. You know, it's hard to really appreciate how good you have it. At some point, you know, no one, no one, no one avoids the rain forever. There's a little bit of rain in everyone's life. You can't, you know, so it's, it's bad to get wet. But it's actually only then that you really appreciate uh, the good. And I thought that's a very important life insight and life lesson, which could, you know, especially as once you're full and you're schmoozing and eating, you know, again, if you have older kids who could have serious conversations, it's actually a good conversation starter about the order 
of things. And now this I'll end, we'll end in 30 seconds, which is, this is, so, very few times, but in the early part of our marriage, I did spend, I think it was ended up being two years or three years, not more than that, uh, Seder with my in-laws. Because even in the beginning when we were going to parents and in-laws, but it was like one year Seder, my parents, one year Seder, her parents. And then at some point I became rabbi in Baltimore and we weren't going to anyone's Seder, we were having our own Seder at the time. Um, and now for many, many years we've been either on our own or with my parents. But there were a few times. And the first thing I noticed, I can say this, I would have said this even if she was here and Alana would be laughing, because she remembers me right away saying, what are your family doing? Which is that when they, as they're waiting for Shulchan Aruch, as we've already finished everything, we're bringing out the meal, they take out the eggs. Now not just eating the eggs, my, my father likes to eat his egg too. Yes, my father doesn't just eat the egg, but in her family they have egg wars. They bash the hard-boiled eggs against each other, see who's... These things crash. That's a uniquely Bachman family thing, apparently. But eating the egg, which I've never liked, I'm not such a hardball egg guy, but that I grew up with, right? There's, an, there's a minog, it's not a halava, there's a minog that at the end of Magid you, ha, you have an egg. Why an egg? And what's the egg doing anyway on the Seder plate? What's the start with the egg? So the Ishbitzer says something very beautiful, and with this we conclude. He says, What's unique about a hard boiled egg, or an egg in general, is that its birth takes place in two stages. First, the egg is laid. And then only later is it hatched. Right? That's not true in a typical uh, you know, a- animal. It's not true in a human being. Right? It's laid, the egg, and then it's hatched. Why is that important? Because it reflects how the Yitzhak Mitzrayim story took place since two stages as well. The birth of the Jewish people is like the birth of an egg. First we had the physical freedom. The egg was hatched or laid. Right, laid. But then it only hatched when we, had, when we got uh, the Torah. And that's a very, very important point. Not to, this is the Maral and others use this theme a lot in the Seder and the Agara. Two types of freedom. The physical freedom and the spiritual freedom. And obviously we value the physical freedom or we wouldn't be celebrating that either. But the ultimate purpose of the physical freedom is to give us the possibility of the spiritual freedom. If we misuse it and we waste it, again, it, uh, I'm not going to belittle it. It's still better than being a slave. But not, it's not really the life of meaning that we want. The purpose of the physical is to then give birth to hopefully the spiritual freedom. And that, the Ishbitzer said, is symbolized by the two stages of the birth of an egg. Okay.